I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today, we welcome a guest, Jeff Trolsch. I've known Jeff for many years now, and in fact, he's worked with numerous Purple Patch athletes from many of the squad in the Purple Patch team, all across to busy executives, time star, fitness enthusiasts, and so much more. But Jeff's world as a sports psychologist certainly is not cornered into the Purple Patch world. In fact, he's got a wealth of experience, 33 years of doing mental training for athletes, teams, organizations. He's worked in the NBA, the MLB, the U.S. soccer national team, USA Olympic development. He's traveled with players of the ATP, the WTA tennis circuit, the PGA, the LPGA golf circuit, USA track and field, professional and amateur triathlon athletes, and so much more. Currently, he's consulting with multiple Division I athletic programs, mostly on the West Coast of the U.S., and more than anything, He's just a fantastic coach of the mind. And I couldn't think of a better time to be joined by Jeff. In fact, we had a conversation just a couple of days ago, and it went on and on and on, all in a great way. So much so that we're breaking this apart into two sections, this week and next week. In part two, we're going to talk all about the mindset around COVID-19. But... We wanted to give that a standalone premise, how to navigate the mental challenges all the way through the fog that wraps around our society and world and of course our athletes. But today we're gonna dive into part one. And part one is anchored all around, really first, establishing what a sports psychologist does. And I think Jeff has a great analogy for it, which is a strength and conditioning coach for the mind. It's fantastic. You'll already enjoy it today. But we're also anchoring around five myths of a champion. Now, for a guy and a coach who absolutely hates clickbait, this is now the second week in a row that I'm bringing the top five. But what you'll hear as we go through this discussion is a really deep, meaningful coach's conversation around what it takes to perform at a high level. And it's appropriate for elite athletes, for fitness enthusiasts, for business leaders. The analogies are so great. And so I think you're gonna enjoy it. It's a, pardon the pun, meaty conversation. And so we're gonna pause on Squatty Update. We're gonna give you the word of the week next week, but not this week. We're just gonna dive right into the meat and potatoes. And you know what else I'm going to do, folks? I'm even going to save, and I'm desperate not to skip it this week, but I'm even going to save on the Peter Minute. And so at the end of the show, we'll just say goodbye, and we'll settle in, excited for next week when we're going to get to part two. But for now, we'll dive right into the conversation. Here we are, Matt Dixon, humble me, with sports psychologist Jeff Trolsch. Take care. 
All right, guys, the meat and potatoes. And today our very special guest, as you heard in the bio, Jeff Trolls. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Appreciate it, Matt. Good man. Well, we uh, we go back quite far, don't we? We've had uh, we've how, how long have we known each other now? Quite a, quite a while, eh? Had a few reps, yeah, maybe eight years, ten years, something in that range, possibly. Exactly. I think I think it is right around there, actually. And we've um, we've uh, we've always had a various different sort of let's call it brands of athlete from uh, some of our pros to uh, to very busy executives to amateurs looking to break through or work with you on various different projects and uh, and i think you originally uh, worked with uh, red bull yeah yes yeah prior to you and i meeting i believe uh, one of the contracts i had was working with red bull's athletes and um you know have had multiple other opportunities to work in other you know professional and, and elite athlete sport organizations but yeah red bull was an interesting one for sure that's a, that's a broad spectrum of very interesting athletes it, it really is i think we missed each other by a year when i was uh I was down with a couple of my athletes with some testing, and I think you were there the year prior. But, uh, okay. but anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so what I want to do today is I really want to try and accomplish two things, and uh, two things that could be a life a, a lifetime of discussion. But uh, <laughs> but we're going to cram it into the next thirty or forty minutes. The first is to do a little bit of a deep dive around sports psychology, which is a subject that I think is often misunderstood, misrepresented. And, uh, and hopefully I can get to, through you, a real framing of its role in performance globally. And, uh, and I think along there also dispel some, some myths around how I think champion or you think champions operate, which I think will be important. Wonderful. But, but, but I can't miss having a discussion with you in the middle of 2020 without also talking about the now, the present, with the world being such a turbulent place, so many athletes in, in many ways losing their compass, being directionless, society being stretched, and, and the whole bunch of fog and uncertainty ahead. And, uh, and if you're open to it, I'd love to dig into your perspective in this situation as well. I think that would be a really compelling part of the conversation. Fantastic. Yep, love to do that. Cool. Love it. So for, for listeners, as you guys listen, as we chat today, we are, we are having this discussion around the lens of performance and so we're going to be talking about champions, sporting champions, but I think you'd agree, Jeff, this goes well beyond sport. This is about sport, health, work, life. And so it, I really want listeners to keep that in mind as we, as we have our chat. But to get us going, as we do with all guests, I'd, I'd love to just know a little bit of background about you, Jeff, family, siblings, et cetera. Sure, absolutely. Um, we only have thirty or forty minutes for this entire thing, so I'll uh, I'll keep it brief. But uh, I grew up uh, in in Florida. I uh, was in Florida until I was fourteen years old. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was twelve, um, and I have a a sister who's younger than I. Um, and when my folks divorced, uh, we moved. My mother and sister and I moved from Florida to Seattle, Washington, which was. Um, a, a painful experience for a kid from Florida to go to a place where um, it was quite different, quite cold, et cetera. Um, it, but what, one thing that actually um, was, I think, is, I think, relevant um, to to me and, and my, our discussion here is I grew up in an area uh, in Florida until I was 14. I grew up in an area that had a lot of high level athletes, um, young, young athletes who were very, very good. Um, and frankly, 
many of them were uh, African-American. Um, I, I grew up in a community that where I was in the minority um, as, as a Caucasian person. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the reason I bring that up in this context today is because I, I, I got framework when I was very young around uh, the, 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 that community of, of African-Americans, that, that community of high-level athletes, that community of, uh, frankly, where I was, was a relatively impoverished area. And I think it gave me perspective and then moving to Seattle, having completely different experiences, frankly. Um, I think it gave me um, empathy and some perspective on just the, the world being a different place, even within these United States. You know, Florida as a young boy to, um, to to Seattle area as a young man, um, I think gave me some breadth and depth of, of uh, appreciation for different cultures and also different lifestyles and, and ultimately uh, uh, athletic backgrounds that uh, were intriguing to me. And we'll, we'll come to it in a second, but interesting. My, my parents also got divorced when I was 12 and right. uh, I, did, I didn't do a, a massive cross-country uh, transition, but we talk a lot about being change able. That that was obviously a massive event for for you. Both the adversity, of course, of uh, of a, a family sort of breaking up, but changing across country like that in that situation is obviously a an experience. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, that, you, you got that right. And I, and I think you know, as I think we'll segue at some point here, as you said earlier, we may talk about the COVID situation, et cetera. You know, I, I, I'm a big believer that in, and I think part of what inspired this within me, I'm a big believer in figuring out how to adapt to situations to the degree that we can and putting a lot less emphasis on what might have been or what happened and a lot more emphasis on how do we make adjustments and how do we find solutions in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Um, and I feel as though that was ingrained in me at a young age and in a quasi survival uh from a quasi-survival perspective, just socially and, and relationally, quite frankly. How about uh, education? Give me a little bit of a backbone, sports psychologist. What was your educational journey? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm old enough and I've been around long enough that there was not a lot of formal sports psychology education. I believe, actually, when I was going through my graduate, I did, I did undergrad with actually business marketing as, as a major and, and psychology as a minor. I stepped out of there and uh, went right into the National Basketball Association. I was at the time the youngest um, front office person in the NBA history. I was 21 years old as the public relations director for the Seattle Supersonics NBA franchise. And um, but subsequent to that, went went to graduate school and uh, was very interested in the note in the in the the area of counseling psychology with with potential emphasis in sports psychology. We're talking you know mid 80s, 1980s, and there were I think less than a handful of of degrees in sports psychology even available in this country. So um, I, I basically um, sort of bastardized a, a graduate degree with a, with counseling psychology, um, master's degrees, and, and had a couple of the four of the forerunners of, of sports psychology ha- actually happened to be in the master's program at Washington State University. A couple of women there, and I, I'm, I'm remiss in not remembering their names. I'm sorry for that, but it was this is you know 30 plus years ago. Um, but th- th- I took uh, took some courses there in sports psychology. Was actually hired at Washington State University as counselor to varsity athletes while I was still in graduate school because they were they had the foresight to see the benefit of mental training for their athletes, their student athlete population at the time, which was which was a really innovative concept and and a, and a very ahead of the ahead of their time concept. Um, and so from that point forward, um, I was uh, I, it was more education through through doing than than through uh, through the books 
It's fascinating because I'm, I'm going to ask a question around what a sports psychologist does. But before I do, I, I, I do want to dig into your sporting background yourself. And uh, when did you first sort of, you must have been attracted to sports. So do you have your own sort of sporting background? I, I do. And again, I, I think um, I think any of us who, uh, at the risk of sounding immodest, any of us who do reasonably well at what we do, I think if we if we delve into our own experiences, it gives it, it gives us some interesting stuff from which to from which to operate, right? And so, for me, mm-hmm. what was interesting for me is I, I, I consider myself a failed athlete um, and and someone who really dealt um, with some challenges related to competitive anxiety and and some self worth issues um, I, that flowed in part out of out of the divorce and out of some you know some personal circumstances that influenced my sport performance significantly. And I had really nowhere to turn. I didn't know how to deal with competitive anxiety. I didn't know how to deal with fears in sport. Uh, and uh, I was a high school you know, baseball, football uh, guy, primarily. I, I was actually a, a pretty good athlete. I, I still consider myself, even though I'm at the age that I'm at, I still consider myself reasonably athletic and a, and a relatively uh, decent athlete for my age. Um, but I, but I have no doubts in my mind that what was um, a major inhibitor for me was not my was not my physiology. It was it was my mentality, and the combination of my own failed sport experience, in addition to working alongside the, the NBA uh, athletes when I when I was a PR director and traveled with the players and traveled with the team, and those guys had no nobody to talk to, no place to go, whatever. The combination of my own sport experience and seeing the the opportunity in um, ha- being able to walk alongside athletes and help them actually develop skills to manage some of the internal processes that they were challenged by was, was a big part of my inspiration to go on to graduate school and, and do what I do now for a living. Well, it's interesting because your master's was anchored around counseling. And Correct. the reason that's interesting is I'm going to ask this question. And, and I think this is going to lead into one of our myths, but uh, but we'll get there. Great. As a sports psychologist, what do you do? Yeah, it's a that's a good question. Uh, I, you might imagine that uh, you know around cocktail conversations, or you know, tell me what you do for a living. You know, it's it's either oh my gosh, that's so interesting, or what the hell is that, or mm-hmm. or or some kind of a stiff arm and run to the other side of the room because they want nothing to do with whatever that might be. Um, so I think for each of us who do mental training, um, how we frame what we do is a little bit different. And I think in part, that's because um, many of us come from different perspectives. Um, the, the perspective that I take is um, I, I have a clinical background. You know, I, was, I was licensed as a mental health counselor. I, I did therapeutic intervention for athletes and non-athletes for quite a while, but that was many, many years ago. The, the model from which I work now is really a coaching model. Uh, it, it's, I see myself as a strength and conditioning coach is how I, is how I frame it. Um, I just strengthen and condition the mind and the mental process as opposed to the body. Um, and it's very similar in that it, it requires learning how to build disciplined habits and learning how to build skills that are employed on a consistent basis such that they can actually be employed in, in, a, in a, a competitive sport environment and not just in a training environment. Um, but because I do have a clinical background, I'm certain I do not do therapy with people and I'm very clear about the, the distinction between clinical work and what I do for a living. But I do use that as a, as a foundational background for me. It helps me. Um, it, it helps me just in terms of how I manage my uh, client relationship. 
um, because often people have personal issues or personal everybody's got their stuff right and mm -hmm. and no 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 one no one is an athlete in a, in a vacuum and so um, those those things that are about my feeling insecure or my feeling whatever I may be feeling from whatever circumstance helping people appreciate how that might influence their sport performance and again develop strategies on how to work around those things and to and to manage those things and potentially heal some of those things is a part of what I do um, but but the vast majority of it for the the athletes with whom I work um, the, the feedback that I get often is, is that I, I feel to them like a coach, um, not, not like a therapist. And qu quite frankly, that that's music to my ears. Cause I, I don't necessarily want to, I don't want to be anybody's therapist cause, cause I'm not. Um, but I, but I also hear often that the application of what they're learning about how to become a greater athlete has real application in their life, um, and helps them be better spouse or better parent or better child for their parents or better just relationally or relationally with their coach or with their sport itself. So there, there's a lot of self work that can be done that can give, give people kind of a, a, a broader sense of how to apply their athletic opportunity in a way that is uh, less, less harmful and, and more joyful. And, um, and those are, those are the, the, the places that I go. Um, it's again, it's what it's not is, um, you know, what was your potty training like at two years old and, you know, and, or, or what it's, it's just not psychotherapy. Now, I, and I will say, I, I will say there are some who do what I do for a living, um, who go down a very clinical path. Um, and that's how they operate. Um, there are others who go down the path of complete education and it's just educational. And it, there's no, there's no personality, um, awareness woven into it. And, you know, we all have our different methods of getting to the mountaintop and there's no right or wrong, but that's the one that has worked well for me and for the, for, for the athletes with whom I've, I've worked. The, the analogy or labeling of coaching and particularly, I'm going to go back to that, that thought you said around a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. You couldn't have picked in my mind in many ways, you couldn't have picked a better analogy because when we think about endurance athletes, which is obviously my field, Right. Uh, most endurance athletes and most uh, endurance coaches view strength and conditioning as uh, reducing the reducing the potential of a negative. In other words, injury prevention. Right. But in fact, uh, it, it's now over the course of the last years has been rightfully repositioned as performance enhancement. You don't do strength and conditioning to not get injured. You do it to become a better endurance athlete. Well put. It, it, traditionally. People view, I think, sports psychology as fixing something that is broken and uh, versus actually enhancing something to become a better athlete. Would right. you agree yeah, with that? I mean, uh, I mean, that was really well articulated. That's exactly right. And, and the evolution over the 33 years I've been doing this, I've been grateful for the evolution. Initially, it was absolutely seen like in nearly every circumstance as, Oh, you know, you, you work with the crazy ones or the ones who have the massive problems. And you know, I worked in major league baseball and the NBA and Olympic development programs have been a bit all over the place. And early on, there was a lot of, Hey, we want to bring you in because we got this guy who's, you know, really important cog in our wheel, but he's crazy as, as, as you know, he's crazy as a loon. So we, we want you to try to figure out how to help him manage himself or, or something. And it was almost always that sort of, you know, go find the sick one and help heal them. 
Um, and I'm so grateful, cr- frankly, for not only my industry, but also for me personally, selfishly, that people are, are, you know, people who are in the know about what mental training really is and what sports psychology ostensibly is about. Um, it, it's really, as you just said, it's, it's about enhancing the quality of performance. And I'm, I'm a big believer in you don't have to be sick to get better. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that people see this as something that is skill building has the potential to be proactive rather than reactive. That doesn't mean that there aren't elements that are reactive, similar to in strength and conditioning. If you're rehabbing something you know, that, that, that you've injured, of course, but there, there is this massive opportunity that for years was wasted, whether it be in the gym and strength and conditioning or, 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 you know, with what I do, you know, for years and years, athletes didn't take full advantage of opportunities to, to build skills in those areas to 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 really be a, like a prehab sort of skill build and and that's essentially how i see myself although I, again if were i to be candid which i'm going to be throughout this entire thing i would still say that probably at least 50 percent of my business comes from people who are like oh i'm having this problem can you help me fix it which is totally mm-hmm. fine by me um but it's it's a lot it, you know it, we're evolved we're moving in that direction but there's still way more people who are seeking it out um, I, I, seeking it out for, for, for trying to uh, correct something that's broken. You know, the word that I'm always listening for is when, when we, I talk about uh, mental training, if somebody, somebody says, Oh, I, I don't need that. Um, you know, the, that, that person doesn't need that. That, that implies for me that, that, that kind of sick sickness model of I I'm, I'm well, I don't, I don't need it. I don't need it because I'm not sick. Um, as opposed to, wow, I could benefit from that, even though I'm well and healthy. If I want to get better, I could I can employ strategies there. Again, similar to being uh, in the in the weight room or or um, in the gym. And and I'd be right in in saying many of the skills uh, and the development transfer well outside okay. of performance in sport. I mean, these these can transfer right into into life, into business, into leadership. Uh, I mean, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I said, you know, earlier, I I do work primarily. I would say ninety you percent know, plus of my business is elite athletes, um, uh, amateur athletes who see that you know weekend warriors, etc. Um, but you know, there I still see you know some folks who are primarily seeing me as a performance specialist and helping them develop strategies, like I said, that, that influence the relationships, influence the quality of their performance in, in the workforce, um, you know, working with CEOs and head of sales divisions and whatever, and how they can optimize the, their own personal and their corporate performance. It's no, it's really no different than being involved with a sports program with being in a sports organization. It's literally the, this, this, it's, it's like sport agnostic, what we teach, you know, there's obviously there are nuances if it's an insurance company versus a, whatever, you know, and same thing within sport, if it's baseball versus track and field versus uh, Ironman, there are obviously nuances around sport, but there, there's a fair amount of this, uh, of this training that is agnostic to any of those things and have application to a lot. Well, it's, uh, I, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is the, the breadth of, uh, of athletes that you've worked with as well, team sports, uh, professional sports obviously in uh, NBA and, and baseball uh, you got s- steep deeply into golf and tennis you've got endurance athletes and then of course you've got as you just spoke about their business leaders and right. uh, and as you said it's very similar to my experience it's all kind of the same you can actually draw and, and I think magnify the end product by getting a, a sort of broad lens 
So let's uh, let's dive in. Let's talk about champions a little bit and uh, and sure. some myths. And yes. uh, I, I think this is it's very interesting. You talked about before going into the baseball teams and they're saying, well, we've got the loon and uh, you need to yes. come and fix it. So, yes. um, so, so let's go through, and I know you've got five, you told me five sort of major myths. And so you're going to, you're going to get to lead this part of the conversation a little more, although you can tell that I'm pretty wordy. Let, let, let's go through the first myth. I've got them written down, but I don't have any context behind these. So, uh, so it's sure. going to be fun to explore. Sure. So myth number one that you point out <laughs> that I'm well, I know the answer to this one. It's like, yes, this is a myth. <laughs> I almost laugh saying champions are fearless. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, people who are not champions and not, not many of us are, I mean, the champions are few and far between um, whether it's at a local level or obviously at a, at a national or international level. I think there's this, there's this presumption. I know that there's a presumption at times that, Champions are fearless. They do these things that are just so amazing that they must have no fear. Um, and they just go out there and they just are so confident all the time. And uh, it could be further from the truth. Um, and having worked with you know, multiple people, as you just said, you're number one in the world in multiple sports and, and medal winners at many Olympiads. Um, the truth that I have experienced is, is that uh, everyone that I've ever worked with, even the greatest in the game, um, they feel fear and they're often feeling scared or uh, indecisive or uncomfortable they, they are often feeling that even those who have had you know multiple uh, examples and uh, of success and gathered evidence of success that they still feel it um, regularly uh, and so you know what what is what is uh, important I feel like for everyone that I, that I come in contact with the people with whom I work is for them to be a little less concerned about being fearless and being a little more invested in acting courageously, even when they're feeling fearful, because it, it really comes down to you know feeling the fear and, and doing it anyway. And um, I think often people are waiting to work hard enough on the mental part or, or be, or be qualified enough physiologically or to have done enough training that they feel as though that fear is going to melt away and they're going to show up on the starting line or they're going to be in the middle of a, of a race or whatever. And that's going to, you know, miraculously disappear. And there's no question that for most athletes that does dissipate to some degree. I'm not saying that the, the that it stays at the same level for every athlete all the time. Um, but everyone has their own stuff, as we said earlier. And for me, it just comes down to actionable behaviors. Like in those moments that, that we want the athletes to be aware of what's triggering that fear moment or that indecisive moment or that insecurity moment. And then that for them to have purposeful strategies on how to act with courage in those moments. Cause for, for me, what I teach is I'm, I'm interested in teaching courage and bravery. I'm not necessarily interested in teaching fearlessness because I've never worked with a fearless athlete and I've worked with thousands. So uh, that's, that's the number one myth. And, and, you know, I, I think that's an important point and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the outcome that many athletes chase uh, that that are maybe less equipped at managing this is to seek to extinguish the feelings rather than actually accept that those feelings are there and develop management and tools to to perform 
uh, within the scope of those very normal feelings. You're, 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 yeah, you're, you're so right. I'm smiling as you're saying this because I one of the things I say once I once I develop a rapport with the athletes with whom I work, you know, if, at first if I punch them in the face with what I'm about to say, it would be like, oh my god. Um, but once I develop a rapport and they and they know that I have deep empathy and they know that I'm you know really invested in them, um, there's a point at which I will say to them, you know, there's. I don't really give a shit about your feelings right now. What I, what I really care about is like, what are you going to do? Uh, and because I I'm big on helping manage the emotional side, um, and helping them manage the emotional side. But when it comes to those training moments that are difficult, when it comes to those competitive moments that are difficult, how you feel in those moments are not relevant. What's relevant is what your actions are to override your tendency to be drawn with your attention to those feelings. And so those, those feelings are going to be there. As you said, they're not going to be extinguished. Again, we may manage them. Some of them may be extinguished over time, but, we, but it's really about managing them through courageous action. And, and I, I'm a big believer in helping athletes measure their success, like their success criteria, particularly early on as athletes are, are, are getting their, their skills up to speed. That Early on, I, I really am encouraging and we're purposeful about strategies on how do you measure courageous what does courageous action look like um what how do we identify what those what those metrics actually are and are you employing those in your training session are you employing those in your competitive arena and and that becomes the small wins that that we can that we can build upon and it also becomes habit building which has its application for for down the road interesting should we, should we move to myth number sure. two sure so myth number two correct me if i'm wrong on this but champions always expect to win right yeah the the the, the other expect the, the other one of the other myths this is interesting to me is that people uh will say to me all the time you know they're, they're always expecting to win they show up expecting to win that's why they win uh and that's that's why they're champions because they always expect to win well you know again I, I would say that there are a few athletes with whom i work that they step to the starting line and they have an expectation of winning and that actually works for them um, uh, the vast majority of athletes to the contrary, um, that instead, uh, anticipating, uh, high outcome expectations and you know, often for those athletes actually just creates anxiety, uh, because it becomes a, okay, visualize yourself winning Kona, but then they spend weeks thinking about, well, what if I don't? And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and so it becomes a, what if I don't scenario, um, rather than, you know, the expectations working to their advantage, it actually works to the, to, to the opposite, which is, you know, the expectation goes to the front of the brain, and, but then the, the, the fear center kicks in with the, what, what do I don't, what if I don't? And moreover, th- there are some athletes who, and again, this all due respect to everybody's method, but this is just not my method that there are some who are trained for mentally trained to, you know, see yourself being successful in every circumstance, you know, only positive visualization, see yourself performing incredibly well. I, I, I'm not a believer in that as, as a, uh, I believe in that as a piece of methodology and a piece of the training, but I, I, I feel like what that does is it creates incredulousness when, when they face difficulty in those situations, it becomes like, I don't want my athletes ever to be surprised when something is difficult. I don't want them to ever be surprised when, uh, when they're, they're not having the, the success that they're expecting themselves to have. I, I, that's why I don't like expectations of success. I like anticipating success, believing in success, knowing that they're capable of success, but not expecting it. I prefer exactly the opposite. Actually, what I teach is exactly the opposite. I prefer that what they expect is adversity and they expect difficulty and that they, they're, they're, they manage 
purposeful coping mechanism strategies and how to deal with those moments of adversity so that they know they're capable of managing those things as opposed to showing up and expecting it all to be awesome because it's never always awesome <laughs> and so i find that personally i find that i find that nonsensical that people train that but that you know that's that's for them to do but not for me well vi- visualizing perfection is the antithesis of what performance is i mean uh, you know we have a saying performance progression is never linear and in fact, whether it's uh, so having this sort of utopian lens of, okay, visualize, visualize yourself having this perfect event is not equipping you with reality. Is <laughs> the exactly, truth. And, uh, exactly. W- whether it's performance in life, building a business, obviously something like an Ironman, you mean, there's no better sort of analogy of life. It's, it's, it's providing or, or creating solutions to problems. That's what it is. It's continual creation of solutions exactly. to problems and adversity you're going to face, isn't it? So. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, that's that's why one of the things in, in having worked, as you said earlier, some of your athletes, I've been you know, grateful and fortunate to work with some some really n- nice athletes there. You know, w- one of the things that we talk about often is that I, I'm really not interested in, you know, them being about being the best athlete in the field or being the strongest athlete or the fittest athlete or whatever. I want them to be in their own bubble, like you optimizing yourself. But what I would say is that I want them to feel really well about their ability to adapt as well as anybody in the field, to adjust Mm -hmm. as well as anybody in the field because fitness levels, whatever, like, oh, she's this, she's that, but whether or not you adapt and adjust is a choice. And and I, I want the athletes with whom I work to make those choices based on a recognition of the value in adaptation and the value in making those adjustments and being solution oriented as opposed to just being fit and having an expectation. I'm going to be the one holding the trophy over my head. That, that creates a lot of issues. So is a number three is a, uh, I think a really interesting one to dig into. Okay. Champions myth. Number three champions are motivated to their long-term goals. Right. Yeah. Again, another one of those things where in, in the area of mental training or sports psychology, it, if people are, and, and many people are not really clear about what somebody like I do for a living, they'll say, oh, you, you're the goal setting guy. And and my response is, no, I'm not the goal setting guy. And I'm not anti-goal setting. I feel like goal setting is, is a great tool and a, and a, and a helpful tool. Um, but um, athletes who set long-term goals, uh, champions are not always motivated by their long-term goals. Um, actually they're often, often when they're thinking too much about their long-term goals, it creates a distraction away from their daily process and their daily progress and it, and, or it creates uh, unproductive, non-productive stress and anxiety. You know, they're, they're sitting in, in, let's say a normal year, a non-COVID year, they're sitting in, you know, January, February, you know, uh, stressing about how they're going to perform in Kona in October. It's like, well, good God, we've got nine months from that's, you know, that's nine months from now. And so while I, well, I appreciate that being something that is a driver and that's something that's inspiring at times. I don't necessarily want that to be like the source of motivation every day because I feel like it creates a distraction. So w- one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of one goal for every athlete, which may sound nonsensical, but it really works for me and for my athletes. The goal for every athlete I work with is that they're about getting one day better every day. That that they're that it's it's really about me beating my yesterday, today, and if I do that on a consistent basis, it gives me the opportunity to be 
uh, as capable as possible when that long-term goal opportunity presents itself. And because there's no guarantee that it will present itself, you know, a la 2020 COVID. And, and you know, it's kind of like shit happens. And I don't want people to be so fixated down the road that they get anxious or also so much about that, that long-term goal that it gets them away from their attention being on the today. Being aware of long-term goals, I think is healthy. Being putting too much attention on long-term goals, I see as an issue for many athletes. Now I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a coach here a little bit because uh, I, I love that. I love the sentiment and I can also picture at the same time. So I want to, uh, I'm not going to, it's not a challenge. I think it's a, it's a contextual Please. thing. Go. So getting better every day. If I take yep. the classic, uh, the classic uh, stereotypical over obsessive triathlete, uh, right. there, there is the important context. There is there not to 100%. not latch onto that and go, that means that you're driving and barging. So because sometimes getting it every day is actually reducing and, and recuperation, et cetera, to a 100%. Yeah. You know, in, in, in an abbreviated session here, I, I'm not going to obviously be able to sp- uh, share all the nuances, but you're, it, what you said is hundred percent correct. Yeah. That, that the getting better is it, we're clear about what the getting better is. And at times that's a recovery day. And at times it's like in a day completely away from your sport. In times it's going out and having a crappy training session, but I got better because I learned something from it that I can apply to tomorrow. So it's not just get better because the number on the clock got better or because my wattage got better or whatever. It, it is it, getting better to me means being wiser, means being more experienced and being clear. I'm, I'm just a huge advocate of people working towards conscious competency where how, what are the mechanisms through which I can be my best athlete and be my best self and being conscious about those elements and working on those elements every day, knowing that there are going to be many days where I fail. And, you know, on paper, tangibly, I got worse today. I went backwards today. We never go backwards or worse. As long as we apply that learning, we actually got better because of that understanding. Right. And so that's the context around one day better. It's not always PRing. It's obviously not PRing every day. It's obviously, it, that's not, I mean, I'm saying obviously, but for some people, maybe that is what it, how it sounds. Um, but, but in the context in which I'm teaching it and, and coaching it as you would be, it's about identifying what a day better means and being clear about that, tangible about that. So we put our head on the pillow at the end of the night. Yes, I'm, I'm stronger today. I'm, I'm wiser today. I'm more experienced today. Whatever it is today clear about that so that i feel as though it was at today was an additive day rather than a minus day yeah that, that's absolutely golden we, we could really go on a tangent around the, the power <laughs> and the importance of failure here but i'm going to resist i'm going to i'm going to keep <laughs> us in the lane we'll, ha- we'll have to have you back on just talk about failure because it's, it. it's, it's the critical element of, uh, of performance but we won't do it today he, he, let's let's go to number four we've got two more myths and we are we are flowing here Myth okay. number four is champions always trust themselves and bring high confidence. Yeah, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit uh, akin to the high expectation thing or the always expecting success. But the, the, the key thing here for me is like trusting themselves. And, you know, athletes, champions, the best in the world, they frequently have self-doubt. They're constantly second guessing themselves. Part of that, I think, is, part, is partly what makes them great. I mean, it can, it can make them neurotic as hell at times, mm-hmm. but it's also, it also is part of what makes them great because there's, there's this n- notion of never being satisfied, which I believe is an essential element of elite athletes. 
Um, but there's a difference between acceptance. You know, I, I want my athletes to accept, but never be satisfied. Um, and, and, and the challenge with some is, um, they, they have a hard time accepting and thus that starts to erode their trust in themselves and it starts to erode their confidence. So I, I'm, I'm, I guess two pieces with this one, um, it's really important for me <clears throat> that the people with whom I work put their emphasis on committed actions and being committed to a process, even independent of trust. The, the best athletes don't always trust themselves all the time. They're just committed to a process to see if through that process, it can earn their trust. The, the vast majority of people, quite frankly, um, they're waiting to trust it before they fully commit. Like, oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure about this training adjustment. I'm not really sure about this coach. I'm not really sure about this whatever. And that lack of trust then inhibits their full commitment to something. And so my take on that with my athletes with whom I work is how can you ever know if it actually is a worthy adjustment unless you go all in on it? And so it takes this leap of faith. It's back to that you know courageous action. It's back to that committed action. It, it necessitates committed action independent of trusting themselves. So the best, the best athletes that I've ever worked with, they don't always trust themselves and they don't always have high confidence, but they are very committed to a process of figuring out if they can trust it, if they, if through this process, they can, it can earn their trust. And in that regard, they have confidence in their ability to, to commit to something independent of feeling like it may or may not work out. And, and that, that's a, that's a huge distinction. And the second piece and I'll be really brief with this one is as it relates to confidence, the, the best athletes that I've worked with, they, they emphasize the traits they possess over the state that they find themselves in. And, mm -hmm. you know, most people it's like, Oh, I feel off today. I feel great today. I, you know, like, Oh gosh, I hope tomorrow, I hope you wake up feeling great tomorrow as opposed to, you know, I put in these reps over this many years, I have this gathered evidence. And even people who are, relatively new to sport or relatively new to training or relatively new to whatever they're hoping to accomplish. Most of us have real gathered evidence about the foundational elements that help us be successful at, in some ways, but often we forfeit the recognition of those things because we get anxious in a moment and we get worried about the state we're in and we forfeit the recognition that we are, we just are rife with, with tangible evidence that we can manage these situations well champions recognize that and they're constantly telling themselves they're good enough in those situations. Those who are not champions have a tendency to just get caught up in the moment. Yeah. And get into, get driven into the weeds. Exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. The, um, so the last myth yep. is I think a really interesting one as well. Yeah. And, and I, I obviously get to work with professional athletes and then work with um, everyday athletes, if you want to call it that. And right. This is a very common one that I see that that the everyday athletes look at the pros and think they've got it all figured out. So myth number five is champions yeah. always know the right way to train or to eat or to approach the sport. Yeah, and and, and you know how you how you introduce this is is right on point that the everyday athletes think the pros have it, um, the, the the aspiring pros think the champions have it. The the ones who finish, you know, third on the podium think the one that's at the top of the podium has it. It's like there's this thing where, you know, that there's this, again, there's this myth. There's this notion that there's a right way to do something, right way to train. There's a right way to eat. There's a right way to get to the top of the podium. You know, my, my philosophy is, and what I've seen champions appreciate is there is no right way. There's only an effective way for me. 
And it's my job to figure out what's most effective for me. What she does, it's interesting to me, and I'm going to be receptive to at least being aware of it and considering it. We want, for me, champions have great filters. They don't let everything in and they don't block everything out. They, they take in certain information and maybe trial and error it a bit um, for some things, uh, but, but they are looking for what's what works for them. And that's that conscious competency thing again. What What is the most effective thing for me? So I am all about effectiveness, not about anything that's right. So when, when I hear athletes with whom I work, oh, I think this is the right thing. I think I should be doing, I should be doing it this way. This is the right way to do it. I'm always pushing back on has that been effective for you? Do you know that this is going to be effective for you? How, what kind of information do we have that this is going to be a productive change as opposed to I'm doing it because Susie did it. And I think that's how I'm going to win next time. It could be, but let's, let's fully examine that rather than just chasing red herrings. Yeah. When, when, when I hear this one, I, I think of a, a couple of things, which is that some of the very best athletes that I've worked with, and in fact, the best uh, leaders in business as well, the same thing is uh, they're, they're very good at surrounding themselves with a, a very trusted sort of close of circles to help them provide context information, guidance, exactly. coaching, et cetera, to go on the journey. And there is a trait that I seldom see the best thrive on, which is the pinball coaching. A year or two here, jumping to a year or two there, typically going to a coach or a, or whoever it might be has been the latest success. And yeah. that just, to me, cannot be a positive recipe over the course of, let's say, a six, eight, 10-year career, having four, five, six sort of support networks. Uh, it, it's very, very challenging. And that, that, that tends to sort of betray that concept uh, of, um, completely agree, Matt. And you know, it's like ch- that's the chasing the shiny penny thing. Um, the, the grass is greener. I mean, there's there's a million cliches and 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 uh, axioms that you know that have been philosophies for you know generations because they're truth, and that's why mm-hmm. and that's why they are that's why they are those those philosophies. And and you know, the, the, what I believe is, is is an essential truth is is like these people bouncing around. They're looking for something external to influence them internally where it's like wherever or you know as i say to some of my athletes I, and i'm not loads to them if they want to change it it's everybody that's your life do what you want you know but mm-hmm. what i what i remind my athletes is remember wherever you go you're still there so so at the so at the end of the day it's really about you making the changes necessary and it's not to say to never change coaches or to never change programs or never change philosophies because i think that's I think that's nonsensical as well. I, I would say mm-hmm. the opposite coin or what the opposite of the coin is like eight, 10 years doing the same thing and not getting the results you want. Okay. Let's make, let's flex. Okay. Yeah, exactly, um, but, but, yeah. but, 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 but you're, you're on point with, you know, you and I both uh, see evidence of people kind of bouncing around looking for the latest, shiniest, best, whatever, as opposed to really kind of you know, getting entrenched in something and really digging it out for you. Because if, if you're around a certain level of competency of, of support system, you know, you're, you're probably going to get what you need and what you want there and, and bouncing around really just creates a lot of confusion. And you, and it's really hard for the athlete to isolate the variables around like what helps me get better because there's this constant change. And so we never really get to really dig in and get traction on what, what helps them be, be great over time. So completely agree with that. Let me, uh, let me pivot a little bit and, 
I think that's a wonderful framing. I've just got a, a couple more questions as it, as it relates sure. to the performance aspect. What, in your experience, what are the most common aspects of performance that dismantle the conversion for, of performance into potential? I'm not sure if I said that question right, but yeah, no, I, I, I think I think uh, the number one answer, frankly, is that people get so caught up in their results and their outcomes, and the, is this going to work for me? Am I, you know, it is it's it's the number on the watch. It's the it's the and. and and all those things are as it relates to success being tied to only about outcomes and only about results. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much, so much back to what we were saying earlier, so much fear, anxiety, all those kinds of things get triggered for so many athletes. It's not necessarily motivating. It's often just anxiety inducing to be fixated on a result or fixated on a trophy or fixated on a, a you know, a ranking or whatever, whatever might be the results uh, or, or outcomes. And, you know, it's, it's results and outcomes. And then it's the consequences in the athlete's mind, the consequences of those results or outcomes or the implications of those consequences. It's like, there's so many layers away from the task and the process of, of doing your job as an athlete that they get, that athletes often get kind of drawn away from where we would want their attention to be. So number one answer easy, easily to me is, is outcome orientation. Um, and I think along, I think alongside that is, you know, depending on a person's um, behavioral style or personality, or however we want to say it, I I, I just really believe that um, that there's all this has been exacerbated through social media, in my opinion, over the last several years. T ten years is the last ten years has just been fascinating watching athletes' minds and just in general how people have changed. And there's just to me way more emphasis on wanting to be liked, wanting to please others. There's a massive comparative analysis of me versus her or me versus him or me versus them. Not that that didn't exist before, but it's so pronounced now and it's so in your face every day. Um, I feel as though that is a massive distraction. I know it's a massive distraction for many athletes away from back to like, just do your job. Uh, and that's a, that's a tough one to, to train out because it's a everyday social media driven uh, issue for many. Yeah. And, and, and even coming back to the outcome orientation as well it, i see that on a daily basis as well so which obviously manifests itself or, or magnifies it on the event basis but people have an, an, a, a tremendous ability to make training a pass fail endeavor and therefore it really dismantles the enjoyment of the journey in fact the enjoyment of, of the sport globally as well 100 eh? percent, absolutely yeah and, and i and, and i think that one of the saddest things what you just said to me just like strikes me in the heart because I think it, I think it's the truth and I, and I also think it's very unfortunate because most people enter into the sport that they find themselves in at whatever age they enter into it because they find some joy in it they find they find it interesting or they find it enjoyable or they or, or something along those lines and unfortunately many people find a way to kind of contaminate that and it becomes it becomes work instead of play and not 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 that we don't want to do the work but we lose the play in it. We lose the joy in it. We lose the, we, we lose the, many people lose those elements in it because they're so busy chasing a number or chasing some metal or chasing some ranking that they get away from just, a, you know, being present with the sport that they found themselves falling in love with when they were younger. Well, when we, when you have, when we have you back on for, 
for part two, even though you haven't committed to that yet. But I, I, I've got, I've <laughs> got in, another, <laughs> I've got another tangent, which we could go down beyond our, our subject to failure. That's going to be part two. The other one is going to be the the interaction of metrics and numbers and tools and gadgets that can either assist that or obviously magnify that particular challenge because uh, I think that, love that. That, that sort of narrowing of perspective and pass fail looking at a number is obviously an incredibly powerful in both, both a potential positive and negative component Agreed. around this, isn't it? Yeah, do you use it for good or evil, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll enjoy that. I'll enjoy that discussion. Yes. <laughs> that, 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 that can be part two. So, so let me, let me finish this section with this question. And I have a, I have a lot of athletes that will often say, they almost um, they cloak themselves with this is just who I am, and yeah. I'm just I'm an anxious person. I'm okay. you know whatever it might be. How trainable is the mind and the mindset and the development mm-hmm. of tools when it comes to fear management? Let, let's just call it mental performance enhancement. Right. Well, let, let, let me say this that I. I want to always be respectful of the reality that for some people there is a physiological challenge or a biochemical challenge because of a variety of things that are, there are physiological. There are some people who, um, you know, have chemical dumps that make it, you know, markedly more challenging for them to override, uh, fear, uh, adrenaline, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, so with the caveat being that there are some people for whom, those challenges are physiologically real and or more difficult. Um, I am, I, I mean, I, I've got 30 plus years of evidence to convince anyone who argues the opposite that there people's people are very trainable, extraordinarily trainable. Um, and it, it, it really, again, comes down to, we're not talking about, we're not talking about personality change here, right? I want to make a distinction mm-hmm. between personality and behavior, right? person's personality can evolve and change over time. This is what I believe and I think is true that I know that my personality is very different now at my age than it was 30 or 40 years ago, but it's not a whole lot different than five years ago or 10 years ago, but my behaviors can change every, any day. So what we're talking about is like, I'm, I'm not wired like that. That's again, that's a, that's a phrase we hear from athletes all the time, right? You and I like, I'm just not wired that way. That's just not me though. You know, those kinds of phrases, those throwaway phrases. Well, and my pushback is that's not your habit yet. That's not your behavior yet. And the yet is always key, right? Because you have the, you have the opportunity to change behavior anytime you want. Now, again, are are you still going to be anxious? Yeah, but your behavior will be changed. And if you get enough reps with that changed behavior, that starts to influence the mindset. So I'm a big believer of hitting mindset from both ends about hitting it from habitual behavior and also from disciplined thought process. And in my experience, I've seen people, I mean, I've seen some really old dogs change their tricks. I I had a a guy who was in his nineties that was trying to break a world record in his nineties. And he made amazing changes in the ways that he thought about and looked at things. I haven't thought about this thing. This is a new way for me. And, 80 years of looking at this, you know, so for me, it's like, if a guy can do it over a century, then any 40, 50, 60, 30 year old, you, you've got the capacity to make changes. So I, I'm a big believer it can happen. 
it's the growth mindset. Yeah, that that guy's a champion, not because he broke the world record, but because he's still got the the the, the quest to learn, which I think is exactly, exactly, exactly. You're so on point, right? And so, you know, how trainable is the mind? It's as trainable as I. Be, I'm a big believer. It's as trainable as you want it to be. Yeah. You know, are you receptive to it being trainable as 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 the recipient of new information? And are you willing to be flexible and, and, and adapt and and really actually, again, commit before you trust back to what I was saying earlier, like maybe you don't trust this mental training thing. You're willing to commit to a plan of action to work towards that end. Let's see if it can, let, you don't think it can happen. Let's see. And if people actually engage in it, often people surprise themselves like, wow, I didn't think that would be me. Yeah, it can be you. It's just a matter of doing the work and getting consistent reps doing it. Yeah, uh, I can't help but smile when you uh, you utilize the word yet. My my poor eight year old Baxter, uh, I I can't do that. And uh, Kelly and I yet <laughs> we are infused that 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 word is infused. And he's like, I can't play that guitar yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he starts I love to throw it, it back it. at great, us. So great coaching, great parenting. It's all the same, right? Good for you. And boom, a perfect way. We are not finished yet that's what you just heard i want to give you a week to absorb the lessons from this week and then next week we're going to discuss the now covid19 it's special it's great and i think you're going to find some really meaningful pieces to help you navigate what is the most uncertain time i hope you enjoyed today's show as i said at the start of the show we're going to skip the peter a minute but we'll be back next week Have a great week, stay strong, navigate, stay centered, and remember, fitness, performance, it's the backbone of everything you do in your life. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!